The scripture for today's teaching is from 1 Samuel chapters 3 and 4. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as, the, as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. <laughs> and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of God to us. Thanks be to God. All right, you guys can uh, grab a seat. After that scripture reading, you're probably like, what did I come to today? Uh, but you'll be all right, okay? We'll, we'll make it through. It'll be good. Um, hey, guys, my name is Aaron Addison. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline South. And we've been going through this series called Warrior Poet, uh, where we're actually spending the next few months going through the book of Samuel, um, which is this book that focuses in on one of the most prominent figures in the entire Bible, King David. And, um, and this book that's about the greatest king in Israel's history, um, it does not start how you might expect it to start, right? It, we don't hear anything about David really at all for the first 15 chapters of this book. We don't get his genealogy. We don't get his upbringing, anything about his parents or family life. Rather, instead, in the opening chapters, we see two stories— about women giving birth to a son. And the story really highlights in each one um, the names that they gave to their children. 
Now, I'm, I am convinced that you don't really know a person until you try to name a child with them, right? I mean, it is, it is probably the most difficult trying season of any couple's life. Uh, I remember having lists of names, right, with my wife and saying, ooh, wouldn't this name be great? And her just, you know, laughing them down, and, and that's really humbling. Um, and I did the same for her. Uh, but for real, it is, it is an important decision, right? I mean, this is the name that they're going to have for the rest of their life, right? I mean, they're going to be on the schoolyard, and it's like, are they going to be made fun of? And what's going on here? I mean, it's going to stick with them. And there's some names that are just plain bad, right? Um, no one's going to tell you that, but they're just really bad. Um, they're going to go, oh, that's a pretty name. Is that a family name? Uh, and it's, it's just bad. Um, but I remember really trying to, uh, with my wife, we were looking at names and one of the things that we realized was important to us was what the name actually meant, right? We didn't want to name a child whose name meant disobedient or evil minion or anything like that. Um, we wanted some important meaning behind it. And, and the more that you read the Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament, you find out that in the Hebrew culture, it was kind of the same. The meaning of names were really, really, really important. Um, they kind of felt like it was almost speaking something over this child and really set the trajectory for their life. And so when we come to these two birth stories um, that we're going to see, um, the meaning of their names couldn't be more different. So last week, if you weren't here, we actually looked at the story of Hannah, and that's what starts the book of Samuel. Hannah's this barren woman. She is desperate, desperate for God to move in her life. She wants a son. Um, she longs for a child, and she's barren. She can't have any children. And she doesn't really have anything to offer God. Um, she doesn't come from a prominent family. Um, she just really is kind of a nobody. Um, but what she does is she comes to the God of all creation. She comes to him and she pleads and she begs for a child, for a son. He even says in her anxiety, in her vexation, she's like pleading and weeping to where the priest thinks she's drunk because she's just going for her, asking the Lord to move and work. And God says, God hears her. He sees her, and he hears her, and he answers her. He opens her womb, and she miraculously gives birth to a baby boy. And bursting in joy and life and worship, Hannah, she names her son Samuel, which means heard of God. God's heard me. God has answered my prayer. But by the end of chapter 4, we get a very different story than one we just read about. Where we meet another woman, the wife of a priest who serves before the Lord. And people from all over Israel come to see her husband and offer sacrifices to God. And no doubt she lived in luxury and comfort and the privilege that came along with the position that her husband had. And, but unlike Hannah, we don't know her name. She remains nameless. And her story doesn't end in joy but it ends in despair and in tragedy. Her, uh, she goes into early labor. She dies in childbirth. And with her dying breath, she names her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. So we have one name, Samuel, meaning heard of God, and another name, Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. 
So here's my question. Why these stories? Why in a, in a book about King David, do you start with two birth stories that seemingly don't have anything to do with David? They're not his ancestors, nothing. Why start with these stories? Well, I think God wants to see something in this is that these two stories actually represent something that we're going to see over and over and over again as we work through this book. They represent two ways of life, two ways of living. One way, conceived in faith, is going to end in joy. And the other way, conceived in unbelief, is going to lead to despair. You have the way of the barren woman, Hannah, that led to Samuel that led to being heard of God. And you have another way, the way of Israel, especially her priests, that led to Ichabod, that led to the glory departing. So the priests were religious leaders of Israel. They were set apart by God himself to kind of serve in, uh, to serve before him and to lead the people in worship. And so they served in this tent called the tabernacle, that house, the Ark of the Covenant. So if you're an Indiana Jones fan, you probably have a lot of images flashing through your mind right now, right? Of skeleton faced angels and Nazis with their faces melting off, right? Um, that's kind of maybe the image that you picture of the Ark of the Covenant, um, this holy thing. But what really was this? So the Ark was central to Israel's worship. Um, it, was, uh, it, it was the place where God's presence dwelt. Um, the ark was built by Moses, and really it was just an elaborate box that inside of it was placed the covenant, the promises that God had made to his people. But it was so much more than that. So over and over again, we see the Lord is enthroned on the cherubim, which were these kind of angelic-like creatures crafted on the lid of the ark. And here's what it says in Exodus uh, uh, about the ark. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the ark actually embodied the presence of God himself among the people. It was this symbol that God had blessed them and chosen them and dwelt among them, which is something no other nation on the face of the earth could say. So people from all over Israel would come before the ark, would come to the tabernacle, they would make sacrifices, and they would worship the Lord because that is where he dwelt. And it was almost this symbolic way of God saying, the God of the universe saying, I love them and I am among them. I am with them. And the priests were set apart to kind of oversee everything that's going on, right? So they were, um, they were kind of overseeing worship. No one could even go near the ark or the temple besides the priests. And in essence, they were kind of like mediators between God and people. Right? So in some way, they kind of represented God to the people. So they would say, here's what the Lord's saying. And here's a blessing from the Lord over you. Or here's the forgiveness and grace that God offers you. In many ways, they kind of represented God to the people, but they also represented the people to God. 
right? So they came and they, they actually, it said that they like carried the burdens and sins of the people um, before the Lord. They would go before him. They were supposed to be this symbol of holiness that the Lord required. They would offer prayers and sacrifices for the people. All of this background, all this to say this, is that this book, Samuel, is going to be looking at a king and really it's going to be setting up the need for them, for Israel to have this king. But early in the chapters, what we see is actually what they also need is not just a king, but they need a priest. They need a priest who's going to lead them well and who's going to really um, restore the fractured relationship that they have with God. And in the opening chapters of Samuel, the priesthood is a joke. It is an absolute sham. We kind of see almost poetically, it describes it as the light and presence of God um, is slowly fading away. I mean, here's how, kind of in, the, uh, in chapter 3, verse 1, listen to how it puts this and, and just kind of put yourself here. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. God wasn't speaking. And then verse three, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So it's almost this poetic way of saying the light and presence of God was beginning to fade. It was beginning to fade. The voice of God was beginning to fade among the people. There was only a small flicker of light left. So how did it come to this? Well, in the first few chapters here, like I said, the way of these priests is going to be put side by side with the way of Hannah that we saw in chapters one and two. Hannah, she lives this life of faith, this life before the Lord of trusting him, coming to him. But the priests are going to be shaped and formed by their unbelief. And so I think in this passage, there's going to be three lies that I think the priests believe that led them to live a life contrary to that of faith. So we're just going to look at these. Um, first, first lie that the priests believed. Because God is gracious, I can live however I want. Because God is gracious, I can live however I want. So in chapter 2, we're introduced to the priests of Israel. Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And here's how it describes them in chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The Hebrew here for worthless men is kind of damning. Um, it's, in essence, what it's saying is they're sons of the devil. They're fiends from hell. They're men of death. Right? It's just pretty strong language for them. In other words, Hophni and Phinehas were bad dudes. They were wicked men. And these, and just get this, these are the priests that ministered before the ark. Ministered before the very presence of the Lord, and they didn't even know the Lord. They didn't even know him. And so though they were supposed to be this image of faith and holiness, they really, they made a mockery of all the sacrifices that the people would bring. And so here's kind of what it goes on to describe that they did. Instead of, um, instead of making the sacrifices like God had intended, um, they actually would take the best parts 
of the meat that was offered, and they would take it for themselves to feast on. In fact, it even says they kind of grew fat from their feasting. Um, they just would take the best, the best parts of it and be like, ooh, that's, that's going to roast really well. I really like this barbecue I could have later on. Um, so I'm going to take that. And if people didn't comply with it, they would just take it by force. But even worse what happened is they would seduce the virgin women who were kind of um, serving in the tabernacle and they would just sleep with them basically on the porch of this holy place for everyone to see. Hophni and Phinehas, in them, here's what we see. There's this tragic gap that grew between their faith and their lives. They were surrounded by the very presence of God. They made sacrifices. They were continually reminded of God's grace and forgiveness, that God wanted to dwell with his people and forgive them. And because of that grace, they reason, I can really live however I want. That's okay. There's a sacrifice for that, right? If I want to sleep around, there's a sacrifice for that. If I want to kind of take advantage and abuse my power, there's a sacrifice for that. God's grace. They had come believe that the grace of God was an excuse to live however they wanted. Their religion became fragmented from the rest of their lives. And so they sought their own pleasure. They sought their own desire. They sought their own way. And at the end of the day, they were not worshiping the Lord anymore. They were worshiping themselves. They were worshiping themselves. And as a result of, of their wickedness, they actually um, kind of described them as almost going deaf to the voice of the Lord. So when, when their father, Eli, confronts them about their sin, um, here's what it, it kind of says in uh, verse 23. Eli says to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear um, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And then listen, but they would not hear. They would not listen to the voice of their father. For it is the will of the Lord to put them to death. They grew deaf. They couldn't hear the voice of God anymore. What we see in Hophni and Phinehas is, it's really, it's striking. It's the same thing we see over and over in our culture when we see what pastors go into scandal, right? Um, We see these men that are, that are by all accounts religious. They're preaching every week. They're counseling. They're worshiping. They have a vibrant prayer life. They look like they're surrounded by the presence of God. And then what comes to light? In the shadows, they've been having an affair. In the shadows, they are abusive. In the shadows, they are embezzling money. Why does something like this happen? Well, there's a, there's a fragmentation. Do you see that? There is a separation between who I am in the pulpit and who I am outside of it. My faith and how I live. And in many ways, there's almost this excuse of I'm doing God's work. So it's okay. It's okay. And in fact, there was a, so there was a study. Um, it's just interesting. There was a study that they did of about 250 pastors who had fallen 
um, over the course of two years to uh, moral failure. And with every single one of them that they talked to, they had no personal accountability. No one could tell them no or rebuke them. They'd grown deaf. Each one of them had ceased their personal walk with the Lord of like praying and reading their Bible. And every single one of them, every single one without exception was convinced that a fall like that could never happen to me. Could never happen to me. So here's the deal. It's easy to look at leaders and point fingers and talk about how terrible they are, but we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Our faith becomes fragmented from our lives. Maybe we show up on a Sunday morning, we do the religious deeds, we read our Bibles, we pray some, we worship. Then on Sunday afternoon, I'm back to being the captain of my life. I get to do whatever it is I want to do. Maybe, and hopefully we're not sleeping with women in the church foyer. Please don't do that. Uh, But we decide for ourselves how we're going to spend our money. We decide for ourselves who we're going to sleep with, how we're going to live our life, without any regard to what God has to say about it. We're the Lord of our own lives. And so when we begin to blow up our lives— and we see the damage of our sin, we just grow deaf to the voice of God. What Eli's sons fail to hear, and what we so often fail to hear, is that God's grace is not opposed to obedience. It's not. We're rescued by grace alone through faith alone. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor and grace. And yet that grace does not leave us to continue on the way we have lived. The grace of God is not a license to live however we want. The grace of God is what changes us and transforms us. So that way we become faithful sons and daughters. See, here's the deal. is God is not satisfied with having one small part of you. He's not. He is not satisfied with just getting worship on Sunday mornings. And then you check that off, and it's a pass for the rest of the week. God wants your whole life. He wants your heart. He wants every bit of you, not just Sunday mornings. He wants all of you. Hannah saw this so clearly when she was met with the grace of God, right? God had graced her and given her a son, though she did not deserve it. He had answered her prayer. And in the song that she sings flowing from this, listen to what she decides to talk about in verse 3 of chapter 2. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. God cares not just about our worship or our faith, he cares about our actions and our lives. He does. So the first lie, they believe because God is gracious, they could live however they wanted. The second lie that these priests believe was because God is sovereign, I am not responsible to do anything. 
I am not responsible to do anything. So all this stuff that Hophni and Phinehas are doing, all of that happens under Eli's watch. And Eli's their dad. He's their father. He's overseeing it. And he does nothing, nothing to stop them. He confronts them at one point, but it says he just, he really just kind of lets them go on with it. He just says, hey guys, don't do this anymore. And they're like, no. And he's like, okay. All right. He allows them to continue serving in their wickedness and to take advantage of God's people. Eventually, God sends a prophet to Eli and basically says, hey, you are allowing your sons to just run rampant. I am going to destroy your house. I'm going to kill you all. And Eli does nothing. In fact, in this whole story, Eli, in every situation, he knows the right thing to do, but he responds with inaction. In fact, it's kind of funny when you read the Old Testament in particular, but really the whole Bible, sometimes there's details that you're like, I wonder why that is put in there. And many times it's actually because God's trying to teach us something in that. The author's trying to tell us something. And one of the things that it mentions about Eli that I think is just fitting for this is two things. One, it it describes him as growing fat, right? He's just fat with his inaction. It mentions it like two or three times. He's just heavy. And then the other thing is it always, always, always describes him as either lying down or sitting, always. He never gets up and does anything. Anything. So when the Lord, he establishes Samuel as this prophet, and Samuel speaks his first word, speaks to Eli, and this is what he says uh, in in 1 Samuel 3.13. He says, and I declare to him, to Eli, that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. And then notice how Eli responds to this word of judgment in verse 18. Samuel told him everything, hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Eli, he recognizes God has called him out. And again, he chooses to do nothing about it. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn. He doesn't take his sons and remove them from office. And not only that, but he excuses his inaction by basically saying, well, God's in control. God's in control. I guess I'm going to die because God just told me. So it's the Lord, whatever. He's going to do what he wants to do. Let him do what's good to him. Eli, Eli, in his knowledge, his knowledge never drives him to act. He always knows the right thing to do, he, but he always abdicates his responsibility and he points to and blames it on the sovereignty of God. Well, God's in control. But really what he's after is his own comfort and this kind of artificial peace that he has. And as a result of Eli's passivity, again, kind of one of the physical characteristics we see that really kind of demonstrates his spiritual reality is Eli begins to grow blind. He can no longer see right from wrong. He can't see 
what God is doing. He doesn't have any vision of the Lord anymore. He grows blind. And he couldn't see how his inaction was actually leading God's people into destruction. In fact, he's the only judge, which the judge was kind of like the leaders of Israel uh, before the kings. He is the only judge that leads Israel from peace into oppression because he does nothing. He absolutely does nothing. Mary Evans, in her commentary on Samuel, she says this, Eli stands as a warning against drifting through life with a well-meaning attitude, but without taking up the responsibilities that are really ours. It is not enough just to avoid wrong actions. We must follow through and actually make the effort to do what is right. So like Eli, so often we know the right thing to do, but we abdicate. We, we don't act. We opt for the easy path. Maybe we say the Lord's going to work it all out. God will take care of it. We don't want to step on people's toes. And maybe the way this works is maybe God has been speaking to you and nudging you to act in some way, but you've been resisting. Maybe in your marriage, where there's coldness and numbness and things aren't right, and God's calling you to act, but you're resisting. Maybe in reconciling with someone who's wronged you, And God's calling you to walk in forgiveness, but you're resisting. Maybe it's getting help for your addiction. And you're resisting taking that step. See, here's the deal. This whole book, we're going to be seeing so much about weakness and strength. And I mean, even later on, we're going to see this later on in the sermon, but is that God does not want us to walk in our own human strength. He wants us to embrace weakness. And, but what happens sometimes is because of that reality, we, we somehow get weakness and inaction confused. The grace of God and the sovereignty of God and his power and resting in it is not opposed to us working really hard to see what he is doing in this world. To work really hard to take that step and to fight for what God is wanting to do. Hannah, right, she saw this very clearly. What does she do in her need? She's barren. She wants a son. What does she do? Does she sit and go, well, the Lord closed my womb. So I guess that's just it. No, she acts. And she acts in a way that's not in her own strength. She turns to the Lord and she pleads and she begs. And the Lord hears her. Hears her. So, we should be like Hannah to strive and to act and not not be passive. Third lie. Because God is powerful, I can use him to fight my own battles. So chapter four, the scene kind of shifts and we kind of move away from the priests and the tabernacle and their family and Samuel and what's going on there. And we move to the battlefield 
where Israel is. And Israel's fighting their enemies, the Philistines, and they're defeated. They lose about 4,000 men in the battle. And the leaders come up with this brilliant idea. Um, so here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3, here's what it says. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so they know the power of God. Um, Israel remembers, just like the Philistines do, um, that God rescued them miraculously out of Egypt in slavery. There's all these stories before this when God has worked and won battles for the people. Like you think about Jericho and them walking around the walls with the Ark of the Covenant and God miraculously comes and moves and works. But in essence, what they decide to do is they're like, let's bring the presence of God here. And what they end up doing is they treat God like he's some lucky rabbit's foot. Like he's some trinket, right? Like he's some relic that I just carry around with me and that's going to give me victory in whatever I want to do. But notice what they don't do. They don't ask God what he wants to do. They, before this, in the beginning of chapter four, it says all Israel knew that Samuel was a prophet, that Samuel heard the word of the Lord and spoke to Israel. And guess what? Samuel disappears after that. They don't talk to him. They don't ask him anything. They go their own way. And as a result of this presumption, what happens? Israel, they become weak. They, they're defeated. And, and it's so much worse <laughs> They, in the first battle, they lose 4,000 men. In the second battle, they lose 30,000 men. It describes it as this very great slaughter. What happens is, because of their presumption and thinking, well, God's just going to fight whatever I want him to fight, God actually ends up becoming their enemy. I just think, like, it's not that the Lord just pulled himself away and the Philistines just took care of it. The Lord gave victory. He just gave victory to Israel's enemies instead of them. In the same way, what we tend to do is we want the God of the universe to bend to our will and not the other way around. We want him to get behind our agenda behind what we think he should do, our wisdom, our strength. And what we end up doing in our presumption is we treat the Lord like nothing less than our bellboy, right? And maybe that's like, hey, I need a promotion. God, why aren't you coming through? I need more money. I want life to go smoothly. I don't want suffering. I don't want heartache. I don't want pain. God, you must not be real. Because if you were real, you would have fought this battle and won. What, what Israel failed to embrace and what we often fail to embrace is God will not be controlled by us. 
He won't. The power of God is not there at our bidding to bolster up our human strength and our cunning. The power of God comes to those who in humility and weakness empty themselves to follow him. To follow him and what he wants to do. The Lord is not here to fight the battles we decide that he should fight. Instead, he calls us to turn to him and to trust him, his strength, his wisdom, because often he decides to do things in ways we don't expect. With Jericho, for instance, it wasn't like Israel was like, I got a great idea. Let's walk around these walls. God said that. And then God came through. Hannah, she tells us that by might, a man is not going to prevail. But the faithful ones, God will guard their feet. So in these first few chapters, we see this nation being unraveled by their leaders and by their priests. And the Lord, what does he do? He brings about the judgment he promised. So we see Hophni, Phinehas, they get killed in battle. Eli, old, fat, blind, falls over and breaks his neck. But something happens that no one expected, and it's the worst possible thing. Ichabod happens. Ichabod happens. The Ark of the Covenant, the thing that represented God's presence and grace and love and forgiveness among the people, is captured. God, in essence, removes his presence and blessing from Israel. The way of the priests have reached its end, which is the glory has departed. The glory has departed. He's gone. But here's the deal. This is not a story that ends in despair. This is not a story that is hopeless. But what we see in this is even in judgment, God remains faithful to his people. Because here's the deal. God is more gracious. He is more sovereign. He is more powerful. He is more good than any of us have ever imagined. He is not like us. He's not like us. In fact, despite of all of Israel's faithlessness, God continues to work his purposes. Here's what we see in this story in these few chapters. I kind of have skimmed over a lot of things, but here's the amazing thing. If you just sit down and read this, is you read all these wicked things that these priests are doing, and it's continually interrupted by mention of Samuel, the fruit of Hannah. And here's, here's how it goes. Hophni and Phinehas are wicked men, and Samuel serve the Lord. Eli refuses to restrain his sons, and Samuel serves the Lord. Eli's house is going to be destroyed, and Samuel serves the Lord. And he's raised up as a priest and a prophet. While at the same time that the Lord is judging the way of Ichabod, he is blessing the way of Samuel. Because God is not going to leave his people, 
He is not going to forsake his people. He's not going to leave them on their own. But he raises up a priest who will actually lead the people to him, Samuel, who actually hears the voice of God, who sees the vision of who God is and walks in that. So where do we go from here? Just a couple points as we, as we end that I think we can walk away from, from this passage. So the first thing, have faith like Hannah, not like the priests. Have faith like Hannah and not like the priests. Again, over and over, what we're going to see in the book of Samuel is faith like Hannah's is the kind of faith that God desires. The more and more that people look like the priests, which we're going to see a lot of people whose faith looks like the priests, the more and more we see them look like the priests, we see God bringing them down. And the more and more people's faith looks like Hannah in this book, which David is going to, spoiler alert, kind of look like that, the more and more their faith looks like Hannah, God's going to raise them up and bless them and establish them. And here's the deal. In so many ways, the lies that these priests and Israelites believed led them to give only some of them to God. Only a piece of their lives to God. God was not the actual Lord of their life. They didn't follow him. They followed their own will. They followed their own desires, their own path. But here's the deal. God does not want your religious practices. He doesn't want your platitudes, your lip service. He wants you. He wants your life your heart, every bit of it. He wants people whose heart is after his heart and whose mind is after his mind. And there's so many, especially in Oklahoma, that we have offered God some of us. Maybe God's never even been real to you. And it's just been, I'll go to church sometimes I'll do some things. I'll try to do more good works than bad works. But following God is hearing from him and seeing him and walking with him. And he desires every bit of us. We can't hold some of us behind our back and say, well, this part's mine. I'm going to hold on to this and then I'll give you this. He will accept nothing less than every bit of us. But the second thing, the thing we can walk away with, with is we need to look to the better priest who stands before us in God. The better priest. You see, our problem is just like Israel. Have you seen that? Like, I, I see all of these things in myself. We're much more like the priests than we are like Samuel or Hannah. We use God We continually fail in so many ways and there's nothing we can do in our own strength and our own power to try to somehow get God to come back to us. Somehow butter him up in some ways. We are in need of a priest, right? We're in need of someone who can stand between us and God and who can offer what's needed to bring us back together. 
because we've all gone our own way. We've all run in our own sin. We need a mediator who can stand between us forever. Samuel, he becomes a great priest, but he's not it. He has his own baggage. He has his own failures that's going to come up later. Samuel's not it. And eventually, Samuel dies. We need a better priest. And as Eli's house is crumbling to the ground, God, he makes this promise. And listen to this. This is chapter 2, verse 35. It says, God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. In this whole book, the Lord is pointing us forward, not just to a king that we need, who rules over us, protects us, fights for us, but to the priests that we need who actually reconciles us back to God. One who doesn't just speak the word as a prophet, but is the very word of God himself. All of this points forward to Jesus. It points forward to Jesus. Jesus is the better priest. He's the one that comes and he stands between God and man without baggage, without his own sinfulness, but carrying our sins on his shoulders, reconciling us to God. He's the better sacrifice that doesn't have to be offered again and again and again. He offered himself once and offers his presence and grace for us so that God never leaves us. God never forsakes us. His glory never departs from us because Jesus is our faithful priest. So to wrap this up, I just want to read this out of, out of a book called Hebrews, which is in the New Testament. And it's kind of meditating on this reality. And we'll wrap up with this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them.